Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. In this bonus episode, I'm going to make a brazen plug for the additional content that I produce and make available on Patreon. All the episodes I've published there, 56 of them at the current moment, are available to you as soon as you sign up for membership for a small monthly fee. All the earnings from the Patreon episodes go towards the costs of hosting, researching and maintaining the free-to-air podcast. For that small fee, you get a new audio episode every other week, where the subject will be theatre-related and often something that supports the timeline of the main podcast. You get access to those episodes through a private RSS feed, so new episodes download automatically and you can listen to them just as you do the free-to-air episodes. Coming up is a small selection of examples of the type of subjects covered in the members' episodes. But the mix is intentionally eclectic, so this is just a sample to give you an idea. On the website, you can see a full list and a short description of all the available episodes. When I started the Patreon episodes in October 2020, the main podcast had just moved from the ancient Greek theatre to the Theatre of Rome, so the earliest episodes were devoted to Greek theatre. The second ever Patreon episode that I produced was on Aristotle's Poetics, and I opened it like this. In the main podcast, as I retold the story of the development of Greek theatre, I only made a small mention of Aristotle, which you may have thought an odd omission, given his towering presence in philosophy and dramatic and art theory. It was a conscious decision. Without diminishing his importance, his view is singular and influenced by the theatre of his time so I wasn't sure that including his ideas in the middle of the flow of the main narrative would have given them more emphasis than I felt was needed. Would such a review, I agonised, be appropriate while discussing the tragedies or handled better when discussing new comedy, which was more contemporaneous with when Aristotle was laying down his thoughts on the subject? This uncertainty is probably more a reflection of my own concerns over my abilities than anything else. But the result was the decision not to mention Aristotle at all. Happily, I now have the opportunity to make a summary of his treatise here, where we're not governed by the same constraints of the narrative flow and the weekly schedule. From the point of view of the theatre practitioner or enthusiast, it is his work, The Poetics, that catches our interest. So here I'm going to summarise the main points of that and hopefully explain it in language that's a bit easier to follow than his – It's a relatively short work, and I'm not saying that it's completely inaccessible, but it takes careful reading, and it's certainly open to much interpretation, and that interpretation has been going on for the last 2,300 years. So treat this as a primer, and then you'll be able to find plenty of other thoughts and further explanation if you want to go there. The Poetics was written about 330 BCE, so a good half-century after the death of Aristophanes and while Menander was still in his youth. And as its principal subject is tragedy, I should note that that's about a hundred years after the death of Aeschylus and seventy years since the death of Sophocles and Euripides. So already he was looking back into the heyday of an old tradition that was past its prime. He certainly adds to that feeling by holding up the three greats as masters of the craft. Their greatness has been an opinion held for a long time. Having said that, I should also note that the references to the three greats are fairly sparse. Aeschylus barely gets a mention, and Euripides not a lot more. It is Sophocles who is most often referenced, and clearly his favourite. 
So it's the work of Sophocles that most closely fits to his theories. It's also from Aristotle that we have the closest reference in time to the claim that tragedy was developed out of the Didiram in the religious setting. Although some recent scholarship has questioned this and has argued that it is in fact more likely that tragedy came out of the development of the recitation of epic poetry, where it then developed into a performance. It's hard to really question Aristotle on the point, given his relative proximity to the events, and it is his view that remains the generally accepted theory. He singles out Oedipus Tyrannos as the best play according to his precepts. This is not to say that his views cannot be applied more universally. Proof that they can is surely shown by the longevity of his influence. But he is writing in the context of a later period of ancient drama, and his views are influenced by this. The Poetics is no polished presentation of thoroughly thought through ideas, but more like lecture notes and notes of a rather rambling sort. It's theorised that the work that has survived to us is exactly that, lecture notes, or maybe the first draft of a planned work. Even notwithstanding the ravages of time, much of Aristotle's work is riven with contradictions and anomalies. Consistency was not his strongest point, and to be fair to him, such issues could just be a reflection of his lively mind that was always questioning and trying to look at problems in a new way, and consequently he did change his mind frequently. He puts his approach to the subject up front and centre, saying that it is an analysis of dramatic principles based on his own observations of the form. As such, it is effectively a handbook for those producing theatre, and a scorecard by which an audience can judge a tragedy. And more details from Poetics and the question of the missing sister work on comedy followed, as well as another episode on the life of the great man. Towards the end of season one, I produced a short episode on Greek satire plays, short because there's very little information available about them. And then shortly after I was able to talk to director Jimmy Waters, who had worked with Tony Harrison on a production of his updated version of a satire play. I produced a companion episode about the historiography of the play, which opened like this. This episode works as a partner to episodes 22 and 32 of the main podcast, which are concerned respectively with the satire play and the trackers of Oxyrhynchus by Sophocles in a version by Tony Harrison. As you will know from these episodes, Trackers was discovered in papyri found in Egypt by two British papyrologists. Here's a bit about them and what it was that they found over a century ago in Egypt. The site at Oxyrhynchus was an ancient rubbish dump. What was found there were manuscripts dating from the 3rd century BCE, which is the Ptolemaic period, and additionally from 32 BCE to 640 CE. Mostly, the documents were public records of tax assessments, census details, court readings and property records of sales, leases and inventories of accounts. There were also private letters and horoscopes. The remaining 10% or so of the find were literary and religious pieces, including, of course, the until-then-lost satire play by Sophocles. The papyri are mostly in Greek, but some are in Egyptian hieroglyphs, as well as the later Egyptian Demotic and Coptic scripts. There are also some quantities of Latin, Arabic, Hebrew, Aramaic and Syriac documents. 
So far, over 5,000 documents have been translated and studied, just a small fraction of the total find. In Greek, there are fragments of Plato and a codex with a large proportion of a document describing the Athenian constitution. Prior to this discovery, this was a lost work that was attributed to Aristotle or to one of his pupils. It includes much historical information, some of which has no other reference point in classical study for the period. Also found were the oldest diagrams of Euclid's elements and poetry by Pindar, Sappho and others, as well as passages from the Iliad. It will be no surprise to hear that Menander is well represented in the find, with large fragments of several plays. As well as this and Trachus, there are extensive sections of Hypsipyle by Euripides and A Life of Euripides by Satrius the Peripatetic, who was a distinguished philosopher and historian from the 3rd century BCE. There are many Christian texts, including segments of all four Gospels, Paul's letters to the early Christian communities and the Acts of the Apostles. There are many non-canonical pieces, hymns and writings of the early church and 20 manuscripts from the New Testament Apocrypha. The Old Testament is also well represented with sections of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Psalms and others. So, as you can see, an extensive and diverse collection. When Hunt formally announced the discovery of trackers at the annual general meeting of the Egyptian Exploration Society, he described the discovery like this. Three years ago, we were indebted to Oxyrhynchus for some extensive remains of a lost tragedy of Euripides, the Hypsipyle. It is now the turn of Sophocles, and most fortunately, the discovery to which I refer represents a side of the poet concerning which we have been very much in the dark. As you know, it was customary to produce tragedies in trilogies, or sets of three, which were followed by a satiric drama a light piece in which the chorus consisted of satires and the high tension of the preceding tragedies was relaxed. Only one specimen of such satiric drama has come down to us, the Cyclops of Euripides. Of this work of Sophocles, as of Aeschylus, in this line there exist only short disjointed fragments preserved in citations by grammarians and others. I'm glad to say that for Sophocles what may be considered a fair sample is now recovered. When found, the papyrus in question was, as usual, much broken up. In fact, the various fragments were not even all obtained in the same year. But they have fitted together remarkably well, and now arranged make up the first 16 columns of the play, accounting for over 400 lines, of which about one half are complete or easily completed, and many more sufficiently well preserved to be intelligible. Since the length of the satiric drama seems to have been considerably less than that of the ordinary tragedy, the amount recovered may well represent as much as half of the original whole. The play we have discovered is The Trackers, of which practically nothing beyond the title was previously known. It is based upon a familiar myth of the exploits of an infant god Hermes, his theft of Apollo's cattle and his invention of the lyre. It was a truly great discovery that added a lot to our knowledge of the ancient world and an episode that I really enjoyed putting together, having looked at the very ancient and very modern interpretations of the satire play. I've devoted nine member episodes to the details from Henslow's diary. I also ran the introductory episode on the main podcast, so you will probably remember that Philip Henslow was the theatre manager in the Shakespearean period and ran the Rose and then the Fortune Playhouses. 
His so-called diary is a record of plays performed and the income collected from part of that period, and although it's a document with many problems of interpretation, it nevertheless gives us some great insights into the theatrical life of the period. I opened the first detailed episode on Henslow like this. One of the things that leaps out from Henslow's diary is just how often plays were presented, and, as a consequence, the vast knowledge of plays that a company of actors needed to have. To illustrate this, I've selected one month of the diary, more or less at random, January 1595. And in fact, I've stretched that a bit to include the Christmas period of 1594, which I think is a particularly interesting period to look at, as it gives us a good comparison for what comes in January. As it is today, the Christmas period was a popular time for theatre, despite the often cold and wet weather in England at that time of year. By this time, Elizabeth had been on the throne for some 36 years. The unnerving events around the execution of her cousin, Mary Queen of Scots, were eight years in the past, and any threat to the country now seemed to come from Spain, who was resurgent after defeating the English navy in 1589. An expedition into France three years earlier had also been a poor failure, and what was to be a nine-year war in Ireland had kicked off the previous year. For all of these troubles, Elizabeth was secure on her throne, and London was a thriving and confident city. At the Rose Theatre, the Admiral's men were busy entertaining all who came to the theatre with a mixture of comedy, history and tragedy. Immediately prior to the new year, the company had had a few days off for the Christmas season. There were no performances after the 20th of December when they closed the theatrical year with Christopher Marlowe's Dr Faustus. In the preceding days, they had played other Marlowe plays. Faustus takes receipts of 18 shillings, which are relatively poor takings, even for this midwinter time of year. But it is a play that they return to often. Part 2 of Tamburlaine the Great took 46 shillings just a day before. The currency here is British pounds, shillings and pence, which now seems a wonderfully quirky currency. This system was in existence until 1971, when the currency was decimalised. For those of you too young or resident abroad, all you need to know is that a British pound was divided into 20 shillings and one shilling was divided into 20 pennies. In addition to this, there were further subdivisions of pennies and fortunately the guinea, that's one pound and one shilling, or 21 shillings, was not minted until 1663, so we don't need to be further confused by those. Values were expressed either as a shilling amount or pounds and shillings pretty interchangeably and without any particular formula as far as I can see. So as a quick guide, two pounds and two shillings could be expressed as 42 shillings and mean exactly the same thing as two pounds and two shillings. I know it's confusing, but I'll follow the way that Henslow and his scribes expressed it in the diary. For the record, I'm just young enough to remember the old currency, but only ever used the decimalised version. I can remember maths textbooks in my primary school with the old currency crossed out and replaced in the teacher's hand with decimal values. After the Christmas break and the success of Tamburlaine Part 2, the next performance was on the 26th, the traditional St Stephen's Day holiday. The company plays the Grecian comedy, which elsewhere is called the Grecian Lady. Unfortunately, we know nothing else about this play, and this is something that you will hear quite often, so apologies in advance for that. 
The play takes a very respectable 46 shillings, which may have been more to do with the fact that it was a holiday day than the quality of the play, but it's one that we see regularly. And then later in the Henslow series, I looked into the affair of the Isle of Dogs, which features in the diary because of the severe impact it held on London theatre in the summer of 1597. Sometimes, when researching episodes for the podcast, I come across stories that are just a minor part of the narrative flow of the current subject, but I discover they are in fact a fascinating story in their own right that is just crying out to be told in full. This is exactly what happened to me in the last members episode I wrote, so now follows an additional story that I hadn't expected, but one that I am only too happy to share with you now. The main events for this episode didn't happen at the Rose Playhouse, but did have a devastating effect on the summer and autumn of 1597 on all concerned with the theatre in London. You will remember that when covering the story of Elizabethan acting troops in the last episode, I mentioned the production of a now lost play called The Isle of Dogs by Ben Johnson and Thomas Nash. This was at the Swan Theatre and led to the closure of the London theatres that summer. Although this is not strictly part of Henslow's diary and his story, it is too interesting to pass it by, so here are some more details about the affair around the Isle of Dogs, produced by Francis Langley and played by the Lord Pembroke's men at the Swan, that must have dominated all theatre conversation as summer turned to autumn in 1597. It all started at the end of July, when the Privy Council issued a new order concerning theatres. Henslow and the other theatre managers were used to orders closing theatres for specific reasons and for a specific time frame, which was part of the hazard of running a theatre and, however unpleasant having to close your theatre for a period was, it was just part of the arena that you operated in. However, the order in July 1579 was of a different magnitude and we can only imagine the shock Henslow must have felt as he heard or read the details. The order was issued to the Justices of Middlesex, the local judicial body who enforced the council's orders in the county where the theatres were located. The tone of this announcement was different from any of its predecessors. This one was not about a concern for public health or even for public morals and had added weight because it directly mentioned that the Queen herself was concerned. That concern was because she had become aware of, and I quote, very many great disorders committed in the common playhouses, both by lewd matters that are handled on stages and by resort and confluence of bad people. And to hear more of that story, you'll need to listen to the 29th members episode on Patreon. Occasionally, I interrupt the flow of whatever I'm on at the time to comment on current theatrical events. I certainly felt the need to do that when I heard about the death of Sir Anthony Sher, an actor that I had admired since seeing him in a Mike Lee play called Goosebumps as a teenager. It also gave me a chance to talk about one of my very favourite plays, Red Noses by Peter Barnes, which I saw in its original production by the Royal Shakespeare Company in London. I recalled that The play is a comedy about the Black Death, so perhaps not the easiest sell on a West End poster. Tony Cher created the role of Marcel, a priest who travelled through plague-ridden 14th century France with a motley band of pseudo-religious comedians, the Red Noses of the title, feeding off the population's understandable fear of a horrible death. 
Cher bounded around the stage, but I also particularly remember the comic turn given by Polly James as Marguerite. The players, for this is in essence what they are, offered the suffering people laughter rather than the church-driven options of pious lamentations and fear of hellfire and damnation. Some people die laughing, but that's the way it goes sometimes. I wonder if now, just about post-pandemic, Red Noses is due a revival. Perhaps its setting and subject are just a little too raw at the moment, but I'm sure, and I hope, that its time will come again. As I noted there, that episode was written just as the UK was coming out of a series of COVID-19-related lockdowns and theatre closures. A little later, once theatres had reopened, a new phenomenon, that of bad audience behaviour, was beginning to be noticed. It prompted me to write about the behaviour of audiences through history, and I was left with the following thought. So the next time I'm disturbed by noises from an audience, I need to remember that historically, theatre audiences have been rowdy and demonstrative, and their reaction to a play, whatever that might be, is part of the experience. As a collective audience, we're probably more respectful to actors, playwrights and other theatre practitioners now than we ever have been before. Certainly, that is true of the periods I've covered so far, and as we go forward, I think we will find disruptive elements in the theatre audience are a common feature, albeit for different reasons, and the sensibilities of society change over the years. I'm okay with that, as long as the disruption is about the play and how it makes us feel as individuals. A reaction is, after all, exactly what the actors want. But now, I do have to admit that I'm still not sure that in that moment of a disruptive audience member, should I suffer one again, I'll be quite that sympathetic. More recently, I've devoted episodes to a reading of My Life in Art by the great Russian theatre practitioner Konstantin Stanislavsky. The autobiography not only lays out his experiences in the theatre that led him to his highly influential theories, but provides some lovely vignettes of Russian life at the tail end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th. I introduced the reading like this. My Life in Art is divided into four sections that take the reader through Stanislavski's life chronologically, but with the emphasis on his artistic influences. The first part concerns his childhood, taking him through to his early 20s. First, he describes his family life and upbringing, including his early trips to the circus, the Italian opera, the ballet, and his all-important introduction to the Russian theatre. From the description of a puppet show he put on at his home with his siblings, he goes on to describe his first experiences of acting. He also covers his only attempt at a formal theatre education. He lasted just three weeks at the drama school before deciding that route was not for him. The second part of the book is a brief section dealing with some of his attempts at amateur family productions in the summer of 1884. This concerns the staging of operettas, which were very popular in Moscow at the time. He also talks about his obsession with ballet and his ambitions to become an opera singer, both of which were short-lived, which may have been a loss to opera and ballet, but to the benefit of world theatre. The third section is called Artistic Youth and is by far the largest part of the book and discusses his most significant work, including the foundation of the Moscow Society of Art and Literature in the winter of 1888. In the first half of this section, 
he describes many of the plays put on by the group, beginning with their debut and ending with the events that led up to the formation of the Moscow Arts Theatre in October 1897. He discusses what he considers his most significant breakthroughs in the art of acting that he achieved in those ten years through his practical experiences as an actor and a director. He also describes his acquaintance and relationship with Leo Tolstoy and his co-founding partner of the Moscow Arts Theatre, Vladimir Danchenko. We tend to forget Danchenko now, but at the time he was a well-known Russian playwright and director of the drama school of the Moscow Philharmonic Society. At the Moscow Arts Theatre, Stanislavski was in charge of directing plays, while Danchenko was in charge of the literary side. Their relationship, and the way they managed to maintain it, is central to the story of the Moscow Arts Theatre and Stanislavski's success. As he describes the experiences of the first nine years of the Moscow Arts Theatre, he also writes at length about his relationship with Anton Chekhov and the productions of Chekhov's plays, beginning with the first production of The Seagull and ending with their production of The Cherry Orchard, produced the same year that Chekhov died. His description of what it was like to stage these plays is fascinating. He had assistance from the author, but for much of the time this was only via letters, as Chekhov had already moved to the Crimea to escape the long Russian winters, in the hope that the tuberculosis he was suffering from could be halted. That was not to be, and he died in the summer of 1904, aged just 44. It is through his work with Chekhov that Stanislavski felt he made his real breakthrough in the art of acting. This was where the foundations for a true realism in the theatre were laid. His analysis of Chekhov is particularly interesting. His view was that other groups were trying to perform Chekhov using older styles of acting, and by so doing were completely missing the point of Chekhov's work. Simplicity and subtlety were what was needed, not declamatory gestures and vocals. The power of stillness and silence on stage had been rediscovered, and for better or worse, Stanislavski and Chekhov will be forever linked through his interpretations of that great playwright's work. For Stanislavski, the beginning of his artistic adulthood, the fourth section of the book, coincides with the first international tour of the Moscow Arts Theatre, and the formation of what would become known as his system for teaching actors. I felt another sad interruption was necessary as we processed news of the death of Peter Brook. As I wrote about his life and works, many of which are still held in the highest admiration, I said, And I don't think I'm exaggerating. In the obituaries this week, it has been said that Peter Brook was one of the most original and influential theatre directors of the 20th century. And even at the great age of 97, he remained what he had always been, a questioner. He was very highly admired from early on, but disliked being called a guru, as some did, because he felt that term suggested little more than lazy pupils and the repetition of received solutions. Neither did he consider himself an artist or an ideologue, but he just about accepted the idea of being a teacher, and for many he was most certainly an exemplar. If there was one aspect of his work that could be said to be common across the variety of ideas he took on, it is that he explored the interior world of the self and the nature of reality. He did that through the theatre of Shakespeare, through opera, through Asian epic and invented language and much more in between. Not only did he work across many diverse forms, but in diverse places too, often stepping outside of traditional theatre spaces, 
from a quarry in Avignon in France to the villages of West Africa and the deserts of Iran. What is particularly striking about Brooks' career is that he was able to work in the commercial theatre alongside non-commercial and exploratory work for 15 years, before he devoted himself more fully to research in theatre. London, Paris and New York all benefited from his commercial productions, which included classics, new plays, musicals and operas. Some were hits, a few were flops. But he had learnt early that the most important rule was not to bore your audience, and most importantly, not to bore yourself, and one inevitably followed the other. Although I focus on historical theatre, it's always a pleasure to reflect on theatre that I've recently seen, especially if it's a revival or adaptation of an ancient classic. There is nothing more satisfying in the theatre than seeing how ancient theatre can be flexed and moulded to still speak to us today. I was lucky enough to see three Greek-inspired and adapted plays last summer, and I wrote in a recent Members episode about two of them. The Girl on the Altar at the Kiln Theatre in North London opened the summer for me. At the very end of May, things were already getting unusually hot, a portent of things to come, as we can now see, and that was before we stepped into the theatre. Marina Carr's adaptation of part of Clytemnestra's story puts a very different emphasis on the original story. Gone is Clytemnestra's powerful dominance of the stage and the single-mindedness of her murderous intent. In this much more domestic version of the story, the power still lies with Agamemnon. Here we see Carr's version of what fills the gaps that the ancient Greeks never saw. The domestic scenes inside the palace, the private words between Clytemnestra and her husband. As in the original, they still act out a dance around each other as they weigh up each other's intent. But that intent is expressed through a series of internal monologues. In these, the horror of the decisions made for the good of the state are revealed from both sides, like an itch that can't be ignored. The gods are largely removed from this version. The play is far more concerned with the two humans at the centre of the tragedy. I remember particularly moments of stillness in the production that were used to enhance the violent speech or dramatic action that soon followed. This was still Greek tragedy, so it's no spoiler to say that the bed that was the centre of the stage set ended up drenched in blood. But even before that savage endpoint, the bed is significant. It dominated the sparse set, was walked over, lain in, sheets and pillows were changed, but it remained often the dividing space between the warring couple. As one reviewer commented, this was the story of a marriage, of how unequal power and toxic masculinity can corrupt love and sex, and about the lifelong pains of childbirth. And to hear more on that, and the production of Antigone updated to a conflicted British Muslim family, you'll need to listen to Members episode 51. If that has given you a taste for more audio on theatre history, please take a look at www.patreon.com thoetp and consider subscribing to the member feed there. If you're not able to commit to a regular subscription but would like to hear some specific episodes, I can put together a bespoke package of audio files for a one-off fee. For details of this, please go to the podcast website at www.thehistoryofeuropeantheatre.com and follow the link on the main menu to Patreon episodes. So a particularly special thank you for listening today. 
And even if you're not able to join the members, I hope you found this episode interesting. Next time, we are back to the early Tudor theatre with the tragedy Gorboduc. In the meantime, don't forget the Facebook page or group or find us on Instagram or on Twitter. No charge for any of those places, but they will help you to keep up to date with the podcast and other theatre-related stuff. I look forward to your company next time, but if you do have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. Thank you.